Folks, a quick message from our sponsors, Know Before. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of cybersecurity, we call confidence tricks social engineering. And as our sponsors, Know Before, will tell you, human error is how most organizations are compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out here in just a minute. Now, our sponsors' questions about forms of social engineering come in this form. Know Before will tell you that there's human contact, there can be con games. It's important to build the kind of security culture in which your employees are enabled to make smart security decisions. To do that, they need a new school security awareness training. See how security culture stacks up against Know Before's free phishing test. Get it now at knowbefore.com forward slash phishing test. That's knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Now, no before wants to thank you for listening to the show and I want to thank them for sponsoring it. They are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated fishing platform. Be sure to take advantage of their free fishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com forward slash fishing test. Think no before for your security training. Hey, hey, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for CISO Talk. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you're a first-time listener or a bunch-of-time listener and you love our content and you haven't subscribed, do so now. Also, give us some reviews, folks. I love reading reviews. I love getting feedback, so make sure you do that on your favorite podcast listening platform. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, below, subscribe, hit the bell. You get all of our podcasts, our daily podcast, our weekly podcast. It's a lot of fun. A lot of really cool stuff. Um, so make sure you do that. Um, got a really, really cool episode today. Really, really cool episode. Because while this is CISO Talks, CISOs can't really survive today without their counterparts in the business world. And those counterparts are BISOs. Some of you guys know Patrick Benoit, a very, very good friend of the show. person who's been on uh, plenty of times. And he's the BISO over at CBRE. And today joining me is not Patrick, but... Another version, Reza Solari. He is the BISO over at Pacific Life. And you're talking to us from lovely London, sir. Would you like some uh, two o'clock tea, please? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, With a a nice scone with some uh, clotted cream and jam. (laughs) Or coffee uh, or tea with milk. Can't do that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or lemon, depending on which tea it is. Yes, that is just not my mm. deal. Um, before we get started, folks, cyberhubpodcast.com. You can get all of our information. Subscribe there. You can uh, get a bunch of exclusive content there as well. So make sure you go check it out. And Reza, so welcome to the show. We're, we're, we're ready to go, man. We're, we're, we're set to make this happen. Um, I'm excited to have you on the show. i got to say thank you for taking the time. I know you're really busy, so I appreciate it. Um, Tell our audience a little bit about how you got started in security, how you ended up in your current role, and, and kind of what was your journey to become a BSO? Certainly. So I think like most security people 18 years ago, I got kind of thrown into it by accident. I had joined the uh, U.S. Air Force and was trained up to be a network technician, you know, working on switches and routers and all things Cisco. And uh, one day, the, the flight superintendent's like, hey, uh, I need somebody who can work a firewall. And everyone's just kind of staring at each other like, oh, you, you know about IP addresses? I'm like, yeah, oh, great. You're the firewall guy. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave me a, they gave me a, 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 like a, a big, thick manual from uh, DISA that said, here's how to run this firewall, you know, the old sidewinders and step-by-step instructions. And all right, go. Like, here you go. You become the expert. That's how it started. <laughs> and and once you left the Air Force, where'd you go from there? How'd you get into the private sector? That was actually quite a journey. I spent, um, you know, I did uh, my, my uh, you know, one term within the Air Force and then went off to do defense contracting as so many uh, military people do. And I kind of hit this point in my career back in 2015 where I'd kind of 
you know, without having to go, my next step for me to grow career wise was to either go to DC and really like get into the defense side or maybe go GS. Um, but that really wasn't the path I wanted. I'm a West coast guy at heart. And so I thought, okay, this is my chance to do uh, private industry. And I thought, well, what better way to dive into that than and what would be more familiar than getting into like the financial insurance space, you know, another kind of highly regulated reg- regimented uh, industry. And so just sheer luck made myself uh, cross over. You know, the, the, the people who transition and we talk a lot about, we talk a lot about this in cyber, right? There's the transition from military to civilian. And right now, especially now, um, a lot of companies, um, love getting and hiring veterans who come with that, uh, cybersecurity background from the military. How has that helped you in your career? Where, where do you feel like beyond building that first firewall, what else has it done for you? Well, I mean, you're part of a, a network, a brotherhood, if you will, and sisterhood uh, of military people globally. And throughout so many organizations, people recognize that they see value in that. And I think there's something really special about hiring somebody that you know has a mission focus and wants to kind of go above and beyond. I think that's one of the things that kind of sets a veteran apart from the rest of the job force is that we just have that sort of dedication and missions mindset that you just don't find in the private sector generally. Generally, yeah. I mean, part of it also I think has to do with uh, with that level of just focus and I don't want to say integrity, but just that level of focus and commitment that is, you know, you're committed to what you're doing. You believe in what you do and you, you, you know, you don't go to the military to make money. No one goes to the service. None of us made money in the service. No one made money in the service. Um, The advantage though, of being a veteran is you don't walk out with college debt. Huge advantage. So you start your life a little bit. You give you give a lot, but you get a lot. And and I feel like, you know, the country always takes care of you. There's stuff that we need to get better on, but we, we do fairly well in taking care of our veterans. And our veterans are really appreciated in cyber. Did you have any mentors kind of as you progressed from the from you know the the military side, the defense side to the civilian side? Did you have like any mentors or people who really kind of patched that piece for you? Yeah, I mean, you can, I always look at former bosses, because even, you know, you have good bosses, you learn great things from, you have terrible bosses that you also learn from. I, I think there's never been a boss I've had that you had it. One in particular uh, was a uh, former, uh, she was a retired GS-15 over in Spay War in San Diego, uh, who then switched over to work as a defense, you know, project manager, you know, program manager for a defense contractor, uh, Gina. She was so instrumental not only just to me as a cybersecurity person, but as a as a people leader. So I remember I remember when she hired me on. Um, I'm doing my the awkward salary negotiation dance, and it's kind of this. Oh well, I, you know, I kind of think I want this, and she's like, and she's this old you know, older lady from Boston. She goes, Nah, you, that's that's too low. I'm going to put you in at this amount because the first year the company's going to screw you over on your pay raise because you're new, you're not going to get the full. So I'm just going to go ahead and give you your raise now. So remember that in a year when you're disappointed that you got your raise now. And I was just like, wow, talk about a boss who wasn't just looking to like pad her, her margins and thought, Hey, I'm going to take care of this person from day one. Actually, not even day one. It was like day negative, you know, 15, I was in negotiations from that moment. I learned like, Whoa, you take care of people. They take care of you until this day. If she sends me a call, you know, sends me a text or calls me, I'm on it. I don't care what it is. I mean, there's that kind of loyalty that you get built from working with people like that. Yeah, it's uh, I love hearing those stories. And shout out to Gina for taking care of you like that. I mean, so often in, in, in the military defense contracting space, like it's they nickel and dime you, man, every piece of the way. A lot of people go to that and, you know, you make you make good money better than the military. So you, you appreciate it a lot more, but at the same time, you're nickel and dimed along the way. And, you know, veterans were honorable people. So we honor our terms, but the people who we deal with, who a lot of times run these defense companies are business people. And they don't always have the same level of integrity or commitment to the people as, as the people do to them. No. Yeah. That's so true. You know, it's, it's interesting. So as a, you know, as a BSO, so, do, do you have a team 
is is there is there people who work with you in, in, in your current role? This role is one of the most interesting ones I've had because I don't have any direct reports. I have a shared information security team back in our headquarters in California uh, that I basically compete with the other BSOs to get resourcing and services from, from the various service leads. Um, so it's definitely a different role where I find that most of my most of my job isn't so much managing down, it's managing out and up. So it's a very, you know, different, you know, up, upside down pyramid, if you will, of how you have to engage the world. So how do you manage that? How, how when, when you don't have any direct reports, right? I know as a CISA for startups, a lot of times I don't get direct reports. A lot of my work is done through contractors, right? I, we don't have the money to go hire a security engineer or we don't want to spend the money on that. We'd rather spread our money across and, and hire people to do specific pieces of work. And when we need them, we get them. And when we don't, we don't. Um, what are some of the key skills and qualities you need in order to successfully navigate that structure in, in, in your organization? You know, honestly, the security skills aren't even what is the helpful pit, bit anymore. That's just sort of expected. It's really the interpersonal and influencing skills, learning how to convince somebody who holds all the power, all the chips, all the, you know, holds everything to convince them to give some of that up in order to help advance something that they may not even want to do. I mean, it's a it really, you know, it's almost like being a, uh, you know, inside sales for the security program. <laughs> it's almost how I kind of feel. <laughs> you know, the BISA role isn't, um, I don't want to say it's new. It's been around for a while. It's gaining a lot more traction over the last, let's say, three, four years. You're starting to see a lot more BISOs pop up. But what type of skills do you really think you need in order to become a BISO? So people who are listening to us who may be, you know, security engineers right now or, or analysts who feel like, hey, you know, where do I go from here? And I don't know that I want to be a CISO. You know, I always change my title in every company I'm a CISO for. I, I, I put chief coffee maker because I say baristas have a longer shelf life than uh, CISOs. And so... Um, you know, in, in your opinion, what skills do you really need to be a successful BSO and to get into this role and really excel in it? You need to be able to to understand the why of what you're doing. As a security engineer, and I, I'm guilty of this myself, coming up, I always thought, oh, well, we want to put this capability on because it's more secure. We want to make this change because it's more secure. We want to implement this architecture because it's more secure. And the business wants to know, so what? Like, what, what's the, what, what is, why do I want to do that? And we spend all this time trying to convince the business of why they should do these security things. Instead, we really, you know, a successful BSO goes, all right, I understand the business and what they want to do. Well, what do I need to do from a security perspective so they can do that? So instead of trying to sell them your whatever shiny object the vendor has you sprung on, instead you're approaching it as, oh, I'm the business. Well, what do I need? The business tells me, oh, we want to expand our office in China. Okay, well, hmm, well, to operate in China, we need to have this kind of capabilities. We need to understand this about the compliance regulations there. And you just you change your whole approach. When you talk a little bit, so what you're essentially saying is a BSO's got to have all the different pieces of security programs and they got to have it pat. They got to understand compliance. They got to understand engineering architecture. You got to be able to have those conversations um, specifically because you're almost like uh, uh, the sales guy for the security program when dealing with, you know, third parties, vendors, customers, et cetera. That's part of it. That's definitely part of it, but you also have to, put yourself that you are also representing the business. And that's actually very difficult. It's almost an out-of-body experience of you're no longer a security person. You're a business leader who happens to know security. And you approach it completely different. So just as like I'm trying to, you know, drive adoption for the security services with my, you know, enterprise hat on, when I think about it from the business perspective, I'm now actually questioning, well, is this really the right thing that I need? Do I need something different? And you actually become, you almost kind of, it's, you start identifying more and more with the business and less and less with your own security tribe. And I think that's a good thing because you need to be able to ask critical questions of your back office 
so they can get the right thing to the business. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the major disconnects early on in security was the connection between security and business, right? Driving business uh, through security, you know, not driving security through business where you're slowing down business, you're causing for... Uh, you're, you're causing specific slowdowns or setbacks, or you're you're reducing uh, effectiveness or, or or production, kind of in that. Uh, as a BISO, as you kind of look at other organizations, what are some of the common things you're currently seeing that you go, "Hey, this is still bogging a lot of organizations down." I think the main challenge that I see when I talk to my peers um, and what I've seen from other areas is that. Everybody looks at the BISO or the security team or the CISO for that matter as sort of the answer person. Oh, CISO, can I go do this? Can I go do that? And really our role is not to be the ministry of no or the ministry of yes. It's really meant to be, well, you can do anything you want. You're the business. Here's the risk associated with that. Make a decision, right? And so many people don't want to take the accountability. They want they want to basically you know, absolve themselves of any of that. And, oh, well, the CISO told me this was okay. Well, the CISO advised you what was the right thing to do or not to do. That's on the CISO or the BISO in this case. But ultimately, the business decides what they want to do. I, I can't go to my CEO and tell him, no, you can't do that. He can tell me, this is what we're going to do. And at some point, I can say, well, I don't think you should do it because of this. I think there's this risk, this risk, this risk. At the end of the day, he can make a decision. Yeah, I'm taking that. Great. Now that we have a decision that we're doing it, let's mitigate it the best we can and try to, you know, contain it as much as we can. I kind of want to talk a little bit about enterprise leadership because I feel like at BISO, in a lot of organizations, they're either, they don't report to the CISO necessarily. In some organizations, they report to the business unit and mm-hmm. they're almost a, uh, a, a partner with the CISO. Um, or in other organizations, they're essentially equivalent to the CISO. So they still have that enterprise relationship. They may still be reporting to the same person, but they're equivalent to each other. So so how does it work for you? And then what are some of the things that you've seen uh, to create a successful BISO-CISO relationship? Certainly. So kind of the, the, plot, the way we've sort of organized it was that the BISOs are essentially the CISO for their business unit. However, they're subordinate and direct report to the CISO. So the CISO still has that global enterprise viewpoint, but basically has deputized the BISOs to basically help run the execution. The same token, though, the BISOs are also dotted line reporting to a senior executive within those business areas and have goals and performance metrics tied to it. So you have two masters you have to please and both have inputs on how well you do performance wise. So it's, it's really a tough struggle because I can get the CISO and the enterprise program wants this to happen. The business wants you know something else to happen. And I'm now stuck in the middle having to basically, you know, negotiate that stalemate because if I don't, one of them is going to ding me. <laughs> so, so how do you manage the challenge of, of serving two masters? I can tell you sharing a personal story. I was offered a, a CISO position not long ago with a fairly uh, large organization. And the reason I declined the position beyond my sanity was the fact that I was dotted to report to one person, but then I also was dotted to report to another person. So I was trying to serve two masters and in meeting both people and in doing a working session, I realized that I am not going to be able to do my job. I'm just going to be playing politics and and agendas and so forth. So how do you manage kind of the idea of serving two masters? Because I'd love to learn from you how you're actually doing it. I think that's becoming the more normal thing now. You know, if you asked me five years ago, this idea of solid line and dotted line reporting, I would have been, what are you talking about? I feel like every position I've been in the last three years, this dotted line concept keeps coming up. And I think that's just something we have to deal with. I will always say, though, having two dotted lines in the scenario you described, I don't think, I don't know how you would work with that. I think it's important you need to have one solid line. There needs to be a 51-49 vote in there. And that solid line, especially on the security side, needs to be to somebody who's not in the areas that you are supposed to be holding accountable. 
So I really strongly recommend that a CISO should not report to a CIO, for example. They need to be have a separate accountability structure because there's no way I can go to the, you know, if I was working for a CIO telling them, hey, you need to patch this stuff and do these things. No, I'm not going to do it. Well, you need to do it because of this. Well, no, <laughs> you know, you don't want to have that kind of awkward relationship. Well, especially when the guy's the one who's determining your performance bonuses. Yeah, and you're kind you, of hostage. You, you, you very, you know, I never understood that. I got to be honest with you. In in my entire time in security, now over what seventeen years or so, the idea of a CISO reporting to the CIO is um, confusing. Like, I'm wondering who in an organization went, you're going to audit me, and by the way, you report to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think a a big reason for that is that so many organizations lump anything with the word security into one team. And to be fair, there are definitely line one capabilities that a CIO owns that are security related. But so many organizations just go, oh, that's security, toss it in that bucket. Well, Instead, really, you should say, okay, well, what's the line two security functions that needs to be independent and separate? You know, the GRC aspects, maybe like the operations and monitoring um, and engineering type support. And what are the line one activities like running the firewalls, maintaining the IPSs, maintaining endpoints? Put all those things under the CIO where they belong as a line one security function and let the line two security function be its own thing that doesn't report into that. You make such a great point. I think we're starting to make headway there. I can tell you that we're starting to see that change happen. It's not all doom and gloom. Like it's 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 starting to change in a lot of organization. I think the maturity is coming based on industry. Um, in in finance, you're starting to see the CISOs get removed from under the CIO, go under either the CTO or the chief legal officer, the general counsel, um, uh, simply out of the need that they're more worried about compliance than they are about security. I think it's fair to assume that large organizations today, when they see a data breach, they're more concerned with the lawsuits than they are with the fallout. Yeah. That makes sense. And so now they want security to be more around the legal team so that, you know, the lawyers and the general counsel already know like, Hey, we're doing all these things. So if this happens, we can already, you know, indicate to the regulators, hey, these are all the things we were doing. We don't know why this happened per se. Um, and, and, and and have that plausible deniability of those conversations as well. Uh, attorney-client privilege is a very, very powerful thing. Just ask the folks at Equifax. When yeah. they were being interviewed after their breach, um, I have friends in law enforcement who said, we didn't talk to anyone from Equifax. We spoke to lawyers, third-party lawyers that were in the room answering questions that we had about the breach. So um, that that's a very kind of like interesting kind of switch that, that I see there. In manufacturing, we're seeing physical security and cybersecurity come together to create the office of the chief security officer. We had David Levin on the show a while ago, right before COVID. I had David Levin on right before COVID became a pandemic. Wow. And uh, he's the chief inform- uh, chief security officer for RICO. Been there for 27 years. Maybe the longest lasting CISO. CSO. I don't know if anyone who's been in, in a position, in a company, in a position to do with security for 27 years. I don't know if you do. No, no. That's that's a first for me. That's right? That might be a record in the industry. It could be. I mean, David is amazing, by the way. Um, and, and for those listening or watching, go back, listen to that episode. You'll love it because he talks a lot about how physical security and manufacturing and cyber are hand in hand, especially in manufacturing. Um, and, and there's some really interesting takes there. And, and we saw that now with COVID, the conversation came up around physical security and cyber people working from home. You know, So you've got your security team that typically operates maybe under the COO or CFO physical security, having a partner with cyber to go, well, how do we secure the C the C suites homes, you know, digitally, not only physically from all these different threats that could be now become a real threat to our executive team. That's a really good point. You just brought up there is I think one of the things that we're seeing more, especially with now that everyone's working from home 
it used to have, you know, you used to have your clear, like, this is my business persona. This is where my office is. This is my home persona. This is what I do for my personal life. And these have merged now. They're really, the separation of between those two personas is really starting to mix in there where you're starting to do your, because we're working from home, we're doing things in our house. We have things in the background of us when we're talking that kind of are bits of information suddenly going after my person, you know, going after a executive's personal email and their personal cell phone while they're at home with access to their business devices becomes tempting. Uh, it's, it's definitely going to be something I think we'll see more and more attacks that are really targeting on that personal side now that we're all home. Yeah. It's also the idea of changing the endpoint, right? Changing the network control. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many organizations that I spoke with, friends, colleagues, that weren't that the entire organization was based off of desktops. So when people had to go home, they either had to carry their work desktops home. But you and I both know what's the weakness of any home network. Yeah, I mean, you have off-the-shelf routers that are yep. default configuration that are never patched because no yeah. one patches their home routers. And so, yeah. Yeah. We take for granted all the capabilities we have in our on-prem offices. Then you come home and it's, yeah, it's wild west. You know, I'm waiting for a, um, um, uh, a breach to take place that happened because of a work from home. That's going to drive organizations to look at work from home differently. Because I feel like right now the motto is we can save on real estate costs. People are working from home. They're more effective. They're happier. A lot of people, you know, this COVID thing, you know, from an HR, I was reading an HR report recently and it said, you know, right when COVID happened, people hated working from home. Um, and then, and then, you know, it was like 30% of people preferred to work from home and the other 70% wanted to go back into the office. Then as time went on, we adjusted. And then those numbers switched. 70% loved working from home. 30% wanted to go back into the office. The predominant 30% were single parents who had the kids with them 24-7 yeah. and needed that. They're like, daycare, sanity. Please get wine. them out of here. Yeah, wine, wine. Where's beer? Wine. All, all of it. <laughs> and and now um, we're seeing a lot of organizations, you know, as, as the economy start to reopen again, as things start to kind of get adjusted, you know, a lot of organizations are working in capsules. So some people come into the office on Monday for several hours. Others come on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so forth. Um, we're starting to see that people are like, hey, I'll go to the office once or twice a week, but I won't go full time. I don't want to sit in traffic. And by the way, when I come into the office, I prefer not to come during rush hour. Yeah, I think we're going to see a huge shift as well in like just the housing markets. Think about like the Bay Area in places like that where it was just such you have to be there you have to be there you have to be there i think i read an article recently that facebook basically was like saying hey if you guys want to work remote go for it you can keep your silicon valley salary but just go somewhere be somewhere else i thought that was a interesting um how that's going to impact property markets well, all kinds of things you're a bay area guy aren't you no no i'm orange county native are you so i'm a bay area guy um Born and born and raised in just outside of San Jose, and so I will say this: inventory right now in the Bay Area is up a hundred percent year over year. Wow! Wow! So there's more homes for sale um, in Manhattan. If we look at New York, um, rental properties, which are hard to come by. Now there's, uh, I think, what was it, like 390% increase in rental property listings in New York. Jeez. People have left That's the city. Crazy. They've gone to the suburbs. They've moved out, you know. And we see that, you know, my next door neighbor here in Georgia, she had listed her house on Friday. She had an offer on Sunday. The house was gone on Monday. It went under contract on Monday. Two days. She wow. got a cash offer for full listing price within 24 hours of listing her home. Good for her. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we're seeing a similar exodus in London. I mean, so many people are realized, especially when you've been on lockdown, some of the apartments in London don't have a, a patio or a garden or anything. 
imagine being just locked in a brick building with a couple windows for two months. So like so many people are now rethinking, whoa, I got to get out to the country or at least have a place with a, a yard or a garden. I mean, it's essential. Yeah, it's 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 very difficult. When um, I was in quarantine in Israel for two weeks, I had an apartment that had a porch and I'd open the porch every day and I'd just stand there looking at the outside world passing me by as I, I, I sat in quarantine. And the one thing that was, um, you know, kind of gave me sanity was the fact that I can open that porch and kind of like be out there. But a predominant but but for people who didn't have a porch for people who you know didn't have a balcony man that's that's tough that's difficult you take that combined with the fact that i you know, i don't know about you but for me under covid i definitely spent more hours per day working than i did when i was commuting into the office so you know security teams are already overburdened and feeling burned out and then you throw in that shift to remote and long days I mean, that's particularly tough it's definitely tough on the mental side of it. Well, it, you, you dive in, right? I mean, I can't tell you when, when COVID started, how many times I just start working on something and I wouldn't even notice what time it was. In an office, you know, come five o'clock, you start to feel the people packing their bags, people starting to leave. You realize, okay, it's five o'clock. I'm going to finish this. I'll leave the rest till tomorrow. But when you're at home and you're plugged in, you've got your headsets in, you're working away, you're not noticing anything. You can look up and be like, whoa, it's eight o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. My wife will give me a tap on the shoulder. Oh, I'm going to bed. Like, whoa, whoa, what? What happened? I, I was just working on a, a PowerPoint or I have uh, my living room uh, lights are on a timer. So, you know, at night they just kind of go off. And so I'll be working. All of a sudden, just all the lights go out. You're like, whoa, that <laughs> am I really like, still uh, up? Ghost of Casper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, when you live in a, a house from 1900 in London, you, know, you definitely have some things that. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, being that we're both from California and we probably still have family and friends there, you know, they're, they're dealing with rolling blackouts. Yeah. You know, it's, it's unfathomable. I know of organizations that are actively telling their critical employees to get out of state because of the rolling blackouts. I know of several companies in Silicon Valley that have moved people to Phoenix or Nevada and said, Hey, we're renting this big, you know, apartment, this big villa with a bunch of bedrooms, go work out of there. At least you won't have rolling blackouts. Wow. That's, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. That's California today. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, kind of going into going, going back a little bit to security, um, beyond COVID, as a BISO, what, what aspect of security do you spend the most time on? Is it traditionally auditing? Is it traditionally architecture, integration? I mean, wh where do you spend a, a, a dominant amount of your time as a BISO? For me, my role is kind of interesting because the, the business unit uh, that I represent within the company is the international arm, so the reinsurance side. So we operate in nine countries we have offices in and we're you know doing work all over the planet most of my work lately has really been around the compliance aspects partnering with our data privacy officer partnering with the risk and legal teams and trying to get a grip and understanding of the ever-changing data sovereignty laws that are popping up around the world and how do we stay ahead of that it's definitely created so many challenges for us to figure out how do we as a global business expand but now we start realizing Oh, like we can't just have one, you know, these central silos where all our data resides. We now have to start compartmentalizing things by geography. Uh, it's becoming really complicated for us. You know, so so let's let's dig into that topic for a second, because I think that's a very interesting topic and one that's often overlooked. Right. So all these different data privacy laws that are popping out. I've been uh, for those who've been listening to the podcast since its inception. I started this podcast right around the time GDPR went into effect. And I'm not a fan of GDPR yeah, at all because I don't feel GDPR is a data privacy law. I feel like a lot of organizations already did parts of GDPR as a customer service thing. So if a customer emailed you and said, hey, I want you to delete all my data, no company went, I'm not doing that. People were like, okay, well, 
take you off our list. We'll delete all your data. Thank you so much. And if you need anything, contact us in the future. Because that's what a business who's in who wants to work with people, who wants to leave people happy, does. Then came GDPR that made that your right. Now, to me, GDPR is just a way for European nations to tax tech companies because of how they build their tax infrastructure. They all go to Ireland. They all operate within the Irish tax zone. It's a 5% corporate tax rate. They don't make anything out of it. Um, the EU allows them to passport employees. So, the, you know, and and so governments in the EU are like, we're going to start making money. So what are we going to do? We're going to pass GDPR. We're going to fine them. And think of the amount of money, 4% of their annual, up to 4% of their global revenue, right? Which amounts to a tax of sorts. And that to me is, that to me is almost fascinating because we all know that you can't stop a data breach. Um, a data breach is inevitable. So they're punishing the victim of a crime. Again, so not only do you lose revenue because of the breach, you lose revenue because of the reputation hit. Now you've also got to deal with a regulator that's going to come and nail you down with fines. And so to me, GDPR of, of, of it within itself is just a money grab. It's a tax for European countries that couldn't tax these big tech companies because that's who they're really after. I mean, the law was written well, for yeah. big tech, right? So you look at other laws around the world and it seems like everyone's pretty much copy and pasting it and going like, okay, great way for us to you know pad our surpluses and get some more money coming in. Should we be changing the privacy discussion Um altogether well certainly i mean i think there's definitely some advantages i think there to me i think there is a, a human right to, to have privacy i don't think the mechanisms we currently have with gdpr maybe are the best way to go about doing that and for example there was a lot of um, talk in the news about the privacy shield uh, agreement between the u.s and the eu got struck down by the european courts and the really the whole reason you had Privacy Shield pop up is because at the end of the day, people want to use and consume services from around the world. And so it's like, okay, we're going to go through all this effort to build up this, you know, all right, we'll make this program that gives this sort of illusion of security when really it's kind of a checkbox exercise right. to get on the Privacy Shield list. And then that, that got struck down. So we'll find some other way to do it. But it, it's just, um, it's an exercise in theater, right? I, you don't get the privacy benefit, you're getting the financial side. I think they really need to think about how you would do that. How to do that? I don't know. Yeah, the, uh, you know, it's it's been very interesting in my time going up to D.C. to speak with lawmakers about a federal privacy bill in the U.S. Um, and there are several bills now that have been kind of uh, adopting the CCPA GDPR model. And in several of the conversations, I, I just... I couldn't understand the whole idea of um, finding a company for a data breach. And the language I think I want in that bill is gross negligence. Yeah, that makes more sense. And define gross negligence. So find companies that are irresponsible and, and define what gross negligence is so that companies know. And GDPR has several language. They say, like, you have to have reasonable security controls. But reasonable security controls means what? If I had an antivirus and everyone used a VPN and I had some endpoint protection, does that count as reasonable security controls? Who determines that? Yeah. That's really, really vague. Even within, so going back to GDPR, I mean, each country's uh, regulator has it determines what's reasonable. So if you have a, you know, if you're a company that you experience a breach in, say, Germany, you're going to have a very hardline regulator who's very principled. Oh, we have to make an example. You go to the UK, and it feels it feels much more like they'll take action if there's appropriate consumer outrage about an incident. So you look at like the British Airways right. uh, example. All right, a lot of people impacted. It's a flagship company. There was a lot of outrage over it, and okay. So the, the ICO takes action on that. 
but it really feels like there's a lot of subjectivity depending on the country and the regulator and, and what companies. There's, there's just so much gray area. It, it makes it impossible for you to really understand what's expected of you. Because we all know, I think anyone in security, unless you're you're halluc- unless you live in like a la la land, like a hallucinatory planet, you know you're going to go through a cyber incident that's going to expose some data, all data, something. So you're you're always preparing for that moment, and when you don't know what you're going to get from the regulator, where you don't know what you're being judged on. It's very hard for you to be successful in mitigating your risk with your executive team and with your board because you're like, we here's some precedents of what the regulators did, but they're all over the map. In Germany, they did this. In France, I think the French fined Google like 5 billion euros that Google appealed and won. Like, you knew they weren't going to get the money, but they still wasted taxpayer money litigating that that, that specific fine. They wasted time where they, you know, for what? Yeah, doesn't make any sense. So, so I find that to be extremely fascinating. I think the whole idea of, of having a, you know, what, what a privacy law should look like is, is more the idea of, of, you know, I feel like laws are written in, in the worst ways possible. And I'll explain. You want to regulate a company rather than, regulate the user hey you want to use someone's information pay them for it yeah period end of discussion hey you're google you're facebook we're saying none of our if you're going to use our citizens data you got to pay our citizen something for the use of that data and the citizen can opt to what data they want to sell to you and you create a marketplace for for that data there was a company that had a similar idea. I was I was looking at. I think it was what uh, Wibson. I think was the one that had a, a, that kind of a model they were piloting. I, I don't know whatever happened with that, but that was something I. Well, the concept got has bought been out by big tech that saw the yeah. model coming and said, "Hey, we're just going <laughs> to buy you guys to shut you down, right?" Um, and 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 buy the IP and just put it in a safe somewhere and never let it out again. Um, we're also we're also under the illusion too that like the really they're they're focusing on what the citizens aspects are. The other side of it is besides just the financial, there is a value to data, and I think a lot of countries they don't even know what they want to do with the data yet, but they know they want to keep it in their borders. Um, they have different reasons for that. Some of them are you know some of them, you know government usage things like that. But there seems to be this growing desire of, you know, I think it all started when they had this, like uh, there was an economist article where they were talking about how data is the new oil, right? It had like the cover had these oil rigs on there. And I think some countries took that quite literal of, ah, data is oil. So I like keeping oil with me. So then therefore we need to keep data here. And so some of these rules are designed just to make sure that you keep copies of data within country. Very, very good point. I I have another podcast called Goodbye Privacy. And in my first season, I did an entire expose on the data broker industry. $150 billion a year. That was uh, two years ago, a year and a half ago that I did it. Wow. Um, So I'm guessing now they're probably at around $225 billion to probably $250. They were growing exponentially at 30 to 40%. No regulation on that industry whatsoever. The only state that had any regulation uh, was Vermont. And Vermont didn't have any regulation for the user. It just said that if you collect data on citizens of Vermont, you got to register with the Secretary of State. So all it was was a money aspect for the state of Vermont um, to to make money uh, from their citizens. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. so, so that just tells you how flawed the view is on data. <laughs> yeah, it's, everyone's got such a different perspective of it. It's really a, uh, it's very nebulous. Yeah, um, I apologize for those little beeps there, folks. Um, my other computer station and my WhatsApp is still open and someone decided to send me messages even though I had a do not disturb. So I apologize for those little beeps in your ears moments ago. 
you know, let, let's transition a little bit to Abiso's role um, working with, you know, partners, vendors, and third-party, you know, uh, audits, third-party data assurances. We obviously know that third-party risks exist. One of the big stories this week was this whole um, SDK in iOS that was being used by, by 1,200 apps that was essentially taking user data and funneling it to the uh, Chinese Communist Party, um, to a server out in China, um, and and holding on to that data that people didn't even know about. Kind of a, kind of a big outrage. But I don't want to talk specifically about that. But that kind of highlights the challenges of, you know, software development and 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 DevOps and so forth. And as a BSO, how do you even begin to take all that in when you're speaking to a company who may want access to your data or you may want access to their data and you're trying to evaluate the risks that come along with that i mean honestly the that whole process is so frustrating because everybody has their own format their own template their own checklist there's no really standard way to approach that so we spend so many time so much time rephrasing uh, you know, a question from a previous questionnaire and copying it and pasting it into their format uh, to make it work instead of actually taking the time to focus on what's really important, which is looking at these, you know, the the subcomponents of the software, the actual application security that's in play. We're more, we're, I, it feels like we, we spend more time on the paperwork side of, of the third party due diligence than we do on the actual, well, what are we actually getting? What's under the hood? Where are these parts from? You know, are you using source code that's, uh, you know, from untrusted sources? And what is that even? Um, yeah, it, it's, there's just no time. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to mute this thing down. There we go. We're all set yeah, now. Edit, edit that one out. <laughs> yeah. Um, where was I? So, so. You, you were kind of saying that there's different checklists, different orders, you know, different answers because there's no no clear standard. But what's the clear standard in third-party due diligence, right? Not every integration, not every business deal is identical. Not all data is equal, right? The value of data is very different. The va- and we know that because when, you know, cyber criminals breach an organization, a credit card has a specific dollar value, a passport has a different dollar value and email has a whole different dollar. So, so data also fluctuates in value. So, so how do you even start to wrap your head around doing that with, with the valuation of data being so, so different? I mean, really, I think if we're honest, we, we all want to take a very pragmatic approach and focus on the, the ones that are the highest risk, whether it be maybe a high monetary value or data sensitivity type. If we, if we spend the same level of due diligence across all third parties that we use or, or applications like that, there's just no way you'd get through it. It's a mountain. And I think a lot of companies that try to basically go through that exercise for all companies, they end up just making it a paperwork drill. Okay, we've requested a copy of your policy on that. Cool. We'll put this down as a, we've seen the artifact. Check. Good. You're compliant. Great. But we we spent zero time actually looking at any of the subcomponents, any of the you know, the real security elements that matter to us, where the risks live. It's all a paperwork drill. You know, the, the idea of, um, the idea of third party security always fascinates me because I feel like trying to evaluate different organizations and especially as a BSO and you're in charge of like nine or 10 different countries. So you not only have to be efficient in compliance and privacy and, and you got to audit them there, but you've also got to be like, all right, we're dealing with Latvia or Lithuania or, you know, one of those countries that has deeper ties with Russia. And so you're always like, you know, you're always like looking at them with a half eye of like, are they just a Russian asset in this country or are they not? How do you start to manage that, especially with some of the geopolitical stuff that come along with doing business in, in the different parts of the world? You know, it's really challenging. I think when I first started the job and working abroad, we kind of, I kind of bring my U.S. bias to most things, you know, especially having coming out of the military and working in the defense industry for so long. I always have this, you know, ah, U.S. good, this bad, and I would evaluate, oh, well, you're using a security product that's produced 
by this country. You're not using an American security product. So clearly it can't be the best. And I'm not necessarily, necessarily saying that we don't have good products. There's a lot of countries with really great products, but just taking my eyes out of, okay, the business is, it, you know, the business leaders for my company are from all these different countries, right? They don't necessarily share that same value and they might look at things differently in their own home markets. So it's almost kind of, um, a bias uh, removal drill, if you will, to kind of go, okay, be more open to it while at the same time realizing, well, based on my experience in, uh, you know, places I've worked, there are legitimate threats to care about, right? This isn't, this isn't some, uh, you know, scary bedtime story for you. There actually is real things that happen out there in high risk countries. Yeah, so right. it's, it's a balancing act. Yeah. It's, it's, you bring up such a good point, which is trying to balance biases versus actual threats and legitimate threats uh, i find myself always having to do that especially when we talk to you know countries out of eastern europe where you're like okay well what part of eastern europe again uh what's the name and and you kind of like what's the accent sound like and you you really kind of go into your military training at that point and you're just like okay how do i feel about this what you know and what's my feeling with these people when we do a call does they show up on camera or are they hiding behind you know an avatar things like that really do matter do they matter to you the same way or do you do you look at those things as well oh absolutely i'm always again you, you go through so many years of training on that kind of topic and how to pay attention to those details it's hard to avoid it uh, but at the same token you have to recognize that the business wants to do business in some of these places and it goes back to what I mentioned earlier. I'm not here to tell the business where and where they can't operate. That's a business decision. All I can do is apply my best capability to help them reduce that risk and go into it eyes, you know, eyes wide open. That's um, that's such a good good input into that. So we're um, in, in, in respect of our time, I want to try and keep this under 55 minutes. We're going to move to my favorite part of the podcast, folks. It's time for the CISO slash BISO insight round, where now we get to put Reza on the hot seat and ask him a bunch of questions. You get one word to answer. I'll ask you to detail if I like it. Um, and I hope you're ready to go into the hot seat. Huh. Let's give it a go. Pick one buzzword you would bury in my buzzword graveyard. AI. AI. AI has been buried plenty of times in our graveyard before. Yeah, it's, it's, and it keeps popping up. It, it must be the new uh, Jesus of buzzwords because every single vendor keeps bringing this up. Oh, but our platform is different. We use AI. Oh, really? Really? Tell me about your AI. And, and it's funny listening to these people just stumble over, try to explain what it is. And at the end of it, you're like, okay, that's machine learning. Do you understand the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? Like, you know, it's, it's just annoys me. Everything they always tell you, oh, but it's AI. Oh, if you're not interested in AI, then, oh, you must want to be breached. What's that supposed to mean? Yeah, it's, um, it's either FUD or you're dumb, I'm smart, or you don't understand how advanced we are. We're like so 2030 and you're still in like 2020. Um, yeah. So, so um, <laughs> vendors and marketing managers who are listening, we love you. We do. We appreciate we do. the work you guys do. But AI... Unless you have true AI, don't put it in there. Talk about machine learning. Machine learning is just fine. We'll look at it the yeah. same. We understand the idea of machine learning. But please don't use AI. Unless you have true AI and you can back it in collateral, because we will ask those questions. And if you try to, you know, tell us, you know, and, 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 and give us crap, then we may not do business with you because we feel it's misleading and dishonest. Yeah. And if you do have it, I want to see it. I yeah. want to see it if you have it. We <laughs> Don't get me wrong. CAI. What's one technology you think that's going to change the way we do cybersecurity? Oh, you know, I'm not really sure what one particular capability or technology would be, but I always keep going around the idea of identity and how we prove who we are. Because I think that that area, that area is going to continue to improve and improve and improve and get more and more advanced in an era where we have deep fake technology and all this other stuff kind of popping up to assume that how we manage a, a digital identities is going to be super challenging. And I think we, we keep 
doing little band-aid approaches on there. But to me, I think that's going to be an area that someone's going to crack that code and come up with something good. and It's going to be game changing. The question is, are we going to be ready for it? Uh, so, so I think biometrics is a great way to crack identity, right? Definitely. Um, you can't deep fake good biometrics. You can't deep fake someone's iris. Um, you can fake a fingerprint because it's only got 40 identifying points and a fingerprint's only identified by 10 points. Meaning all you got to do is get 10 points right out of 40 points to get a fingerprint match. But Iris has like 600 and something. It's got like 40 times more points, like 400 different unique identifiers. It's almost impossible to identify. It's almost impossible to make. I want to say almost impossible, almost impossible. Could it be possible? Sure, if someone has the resources and the money. but But then what we're doing is we're increasing the cost of the attack. So someone who's going to want to do that is going to have to invest so much money that however they do this really pays, gives them the ROI they're looking for. Yeah, to get my grandma's, uh, you know, to get to my grandma's checking account just might not be worth it for them. Right. Exactly. But that goes into like, but when you once you have that that identity problem stored down the biometrics and everything, that's where you start getting into password lists. I mean, one of the things I get the most complaints about, it's something so simple and stupid. Is oh, how do I how do I deal with passwords? And we've got password managers, we have password vaults, password locations, use long ones, whatever. But we get to that world where you just don't need it anymore. That's going to be from from a user perspective, just phenomenal for them. See, I think the idea of biometrics is the this is, goes back to our conversation between privacy and functionality, right? So, th- do people trust that their biometrics are somewhere, right? And uh, they're going to use their biometrics. Now, we do that on our phones naturally. We all have facial ID on our phones. Oh, yeah. Right? But, but, but no one asks that question until it becomes something that's part of your work or the idea of you being able to, to log into something. Then people get all, uh, I like to say, sour about a specific set of technologies. But um, I've seen some really cool biometric technology I'm very excited about. What's the last book you read? Last book I read was um, the picture, the portrait of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. So I, you know, I do a lot of reading of obviously security books as well, but I really enjoy taking a break for fiction. And there's nothing better than some witticisms from Oscar Wilde. Yeah, that's uh, always a fun book. What's the last movie you saw? Who? What was the last movie I saw? Or something you streamed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was. Um, it's the one with the. <laughs> you can tell how memorable the movie was. <laughs> yeah, you, you always know how how this memorable. I, I don't think you know with with Hollywood going on strike with COVID, um, you've pretty much lost all ideas of of every single movie you've ever seen before. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what that stupid Knives Out was the last movie I streamed. Knives Out uh, has Daniel Craig in it, and he's like an investigator of this like murder that happened in a family, and it just—I I don't know what it is about Daniel Craig. He's just a phenomenal actor. I loved him as James Bond, but he plays off this sort of Southern investigator with the accent. Just you know, I mean, it's just—it blows my mind. Is it seeing weird? That kind of role. Is it weird, like thinking of him like as a fancy James Bond, and then all of a sudden him having a Southern accent, like somewhere in Mississippi? Right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's just it's, you're like you're like you have this disconnect in your mind. You're like, no, no, you should be driving an Aston Martin. Why are you investigating a murder? You know, at this mansion with this Southern drawl. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite music? I love Chris Cornell. I okay. you know. Gosh, Soundgarden, Audio Slave, all of that. I he just there's so much, so many layers to his music. And then there's sometimes you hear a song and you think it means one thing. Like an example was um, he had one song that was like a stone. And he's singing how he'll wait for you there like a stone, blah blah blah. And the whole thing, for all these years, I always thought like, oh, he wrote this song about like just waiting for this person, you know, to 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 love you know, that he'll be there waiting for them at all these times and you find out it's about a guy who's basically about it's just waiting for death like he's just ready he's ready to go and just he's not sure what's going to be beyond that and you're like you're like when you hear that you're like oh my gosh like you you also reread all the lyrics and you're like yep it's all there 
and you realize just how dumb you were for like a decade because you didn't even know what it meant. That um, that is a very I, I like deep music. I like music that makes you think, right? So that's very interesting. I'll have to go listen to the song now. You've yep. uh, you've 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 intrigued me. So now I have something on my list to do after this podcast. There you go. And our final question for you on the hot seat today is: What's one thing you took away from the COVID nineteen crisis? Hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, my my favorite meme that I saw of all, everything that came out of COVID, and I think the t- this is where the takeaway comes from, is it was a quote. It was a, it was like a multiple choice question. It said, you know, who has done the most for digital? You know, who's led your digital transformation uh, strategy at your company? And the choices was CEO, CIO, uh, outside consultant, and then COVID nineteen. <laughs> I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, that that is COVID. That's that's the takeaway. All these years of oh well, we can't do it because of this, and oh we can't do it because of that. Suddenly, we were this nimble remote organization in a week. <laughs> well, I think COVID nineteen um, gave executives who may be afraid of doing taking those risks and gave him a cover um and at the end of the day decisions are made um in companies like in politics of what's in my best interest not what's in the company's best interest or the citizen's best interest is um if i do something and it goes south um what does that mean and a lot of times i think in, in a lot of organizations people always forget the ceo in a lot of these legacy organizations, they've been around since the first computers and they've been in executive leaderships for a while and they understand all the setbacks and they've seen, they've budgeted like $10 million to do something and then it ends up going like, you know, way over budget and they got to explain it to the board and it affects their bonus and it affects so much stuff that they're afraid to take those risks with technology because they feel like you're constantly losing money. And I feel like good security leaders, good technology leaders understand that fear, are able to address it with the executive leadership, kind of guide them hand by hand into transformation, saying, hey, let's do this. And I don't want to say small bits and pieces, but let's take a business unit and completely digitalize it and run it and then see how good it runs. Um, I felt like if more bigger organizations did um, had you know little startup units, hired entrepreneurs and residents, to solve problems that would be in such better shape. Yeah, I definitely agree. That's a, that's, that's a really good idea. So for people listening, I want to start a program and a role for entrepreneurship and entrepreneur and residents for big companies, hire a guy who's an entrepreneur by spirit, present 10 different business problems, rank them by one to 10, give them 10, the lowest priority, Get them to do that, deliver that, and then go up the list. And if you can't do that, then at the bare minimum, never let a good, then really a good uh, catastrophe go to waste. Well, you know, there's a saying like never let a good crisis go to waste in politics, right? Exactly. I mean, if anything, COVID came, great. Here's your opportunity. Grab onto it. You've been asking for it. This is the time. Yeah, it's, it's been a, COVID has been very, very interesting. I think COVID taught us a lot about ourselves, taught us a lot about business. And I think more importantly, it taught us that life is just fragile, but that people are responsible, that the whole idea of working from home and that people are going to slack off and not do their work. uh, I think in 89% of the cases that got thrown out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Myth busted. Myth busted. Um, folks, that's it for our CISO talk episode today. Reza, thank you so much for coming on. I know in London, it's already supper time. Um, as one would argue, we, we it was beautiful watching the sunset during this podcast. Cause when we started the, for, for those that are listening, when we started, the background was great and lit and it was, it was beautiful outside and we can see the green trees. And now London has sworn into, uh, the episode, um, Oh man, why, why, I'm having a brain fart. What's the um, uh, British kind of Sopranos? Uh, oh, um, gosh. Why can't I think of it? That is a... uh, I, I, I forgot. Someone will correct me on this, I am sure. It's on Netflix. Um, is and... it The Crown? 
No, it's not The Crown. The British Sopranos <laughs> is. Hang on, I'll t- I'll t- I-, I-, I now have to say it. Um, um, oh wow! I just realized how much the lighting has changed. I have definitely. I'm descending into darkness, just slowly fading to black. I'll tell you what it is. It's um, something boys. Oh man. Um, Really? Really? I mean, even Google can't find this at this point? Seriously? (laughs) Let's look up British gangsters. Oh, that's British gangster was from the movie Snatch. Bricktop. Peaky Blinders. Oh, Peaky Blinders, yeah. It's kind of funny how that, that, that show comes out and everyone starts wearing those style hats again. Like that's become super popular again. Well, if, if no one's ever been to London, the vest has always been popular, but the hats never were until Peaky Blinders. Yep. Yeah, I wear the hat around. I actually never seen the show. We walk around with the hat on, and people are like, "Oh wow, you do you love Peaky Blinders?" I'm like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> Folks, make sure you go to CyberHubPodcast.com, get some exclusive content, get everything you want right there. Sign up for our newsletter. Um, Reza, thank you so much for your time, man. Go enjoy supper, folks. Next week we'll have a lot, a lot more on Sisa Talk. Until then, enjoy the rest of your week. Enjoy your week and relax, chill. Take it easy. Most importantly, stay cyber safe.